Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Jen Kleinhens, Managing Director at Choice Hacking, a behavioral science consultancy that unlocks the psychological secrets of the world's top brands and shares them so that you can create emotional and effective experiences for your customers. She is also the host of a podcast by the same name, Choice Hacking, which I have to say has become my absolute favorite podcast. It has, Jen, you have you have surpassed Dateline. You've done what I thought was, you've done what I thought was impossible. You have surpassed my true crime love to become my my favorite can't miss podcast. So thank you for that. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I have to say that's the highest praise I think I've ever received. I beat out true crime. <laughs> uh, I mean, I am a Dateline. I'm just an absolute Dateline homer. I never miss a single episode. Wow. Your podcast has become the same <laughs> same way. And it's probably a little more wholesome and, and educational for me. Um, so, Jen, this is this is our first time sort of meeting and, and talking. And so selfishly, the the Atlantan in me has to ask this first question. I want to know how an American with with ties to Emory, with ties to Atlanta uh, is coming to me this morning live from from England. How did how did you end up uh, across the Atlantic? Yeah, I mean, it, like many things that just kind of happened organically. It wasn't really something I planned on. But I was working at AT&T, first in Midtown, so the big AT&T building, the Death Star building that's in Midtown. And then I was at Lenox Park for a while, so I worked in innovation. I worked at digital customer experience at AT&T in Atlanta. I got my MBA after getting a master's in brand management, and I went to the Emory, did the MBA thing while I was working. It was a really rigorous program, and I thought for sure, I'm going to lead this program. I'm going to go become like a brand manager at like Coke or Procter & Gamble or whatever. And weirdly, I also had this secondary love of advertising and that opportunity came along to go to Australia, to go to Sydney and work for a big global ad agency. And I was like, oh, should I follow sort of the expected path what I was kind of planning on doing or should I maybe take this adventure and see where it leads? And I did. So I ended up in Australia. I was there for a while. I mean... I don't know if you know this, but Australia is very far away for the East Coast. It was like a 32-hour flight. And with my parents being kind of the age that they are, I thought, you know, this is a lovely place. It's a lovely city. I am too far away. And actually, when I was there working on an agency, I met my now fiancé. We weren't dating then, but eventually, you know, just kind of found myself with an opportunity in the UK. They were looking for a very specific set of skills, a set of skills that I had honed at at and and then before as sort of an entrepreneur. And so I ended up at an agency in the UK, started dating my now fiance, and now I think I'm stuck here for a while. But I've been in the UK now for for six years, a little over six years. And interestingly, like because of the way the world is now, 
I work with a lot of clients in the US. I work with a lot of clients in Canada, Europe. I mean, some in Asia, some in Australia, some here in the UK. And I'm able to kind of travel as and when. I'm back in the US three or four times a year. So it's just kind of worked out. A weird, organic, strange way these things happen. Yeah, that that's that's awesome. And there's plenty of terrible things clearly to have to have come out of the pandemic. But one of the best things I think is mm-hmm. just this sort of global nature of of connection and consulting and commerce now. It's mm-hmm. um I've certainly met more friends from across the globe over the last two or three years than I did yeah. and many years prior to that. So I think that's one one positive to come out of this. So your podcast is just absolutely fantastic. I learned so much from it. Uh, I can't believe I just discovered it, but uh, I'm going to try and help other people do that now. Uh, Let's get to the meat of the conversation now. Let's talk about the psychology of the top brands. As the father of three children and a certified suburbanite, I'm going to start with one of my favorites, which is Costco. Costco gets a healthy portion of my paycheck every, every couple of weeks. And I, I, I guess I was shocked, but but shouldn't have been perhaps to learn on your podcast that they're the third largest retail in the world, because in some ways it appears from a psychological perspective that the Costco does everything wrong, right? It's kind of ugly. It's kind of nondescript. Uh, everything's gigantic. They make you pay to shop. You know, there's sort of barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. But listening to your podcast, there's actually a lot of psychological brilliance that sort of underpins the Costco approach. Can you talk to us about some of the things psychologically that Costco gets right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a few things. And it's it's one of those one of those situations where I think with any big brand, like some big brands you'll see, they have a behavioral science team. They're doing these things very consciously, like Walmart famously had one for many years, Uber has one. But a lot of these retailers, especially like Costco, are using these psychological principles potentially not even aware that that's what they're doing. But because they're in a retail environment, they can test and learn so quick that they're like, oh, well, this is working. Let's double down on it. And, you know, me as kind of a marketing psychologist, customer experience nerd, go in, I go in and I say like, oh, amazing. Like, did you know you're doing, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I, I think probably the the biggest example for them is the cost of the membership. So, you know, it works differently in different countries, but in general, in Costco, like pretty much anybody can get a membership. You go in, you pay like your 60, I think it's between 60 and $120 now to get whichever type of membership that you want. And actually, they found through research that people who are members of these club card stores, so that could be, or club stores, I should say, that could be like Sam's Club, it might be Costco, any any of that, you know, kind of ilk. They actually found that these people spend more, they go more often. And the reason is because of something called sunk cost fallacy. So sunk cost fallacy basically says, I put some time and money investment into something and I'm going to keep pursuing it. And, you know, sunk cost fallacy, I think classically we think about as you know, throwing good money after bad. Like, it's not always a good situation to say, oh, that's the sunk cost fallacy. But in this case, it's it's sort of an example of people saying, well, I've spent the money for the membership, so I should get the most out of it. And a lot of people, you know, they get the membership for the gas and then they're like, oh, well, maybe I should go in the store, you know, and eventually they kind of get their way in there. And once they get in the store, they sort of fall in love with the whole weird and wacky way that Costco is put together. So I would say that's probably the number one that is just... The fact that it's a membership store really does attract people. Another thing that Costco does that's really interesting is they use what's called a treasure hunt merchandising strategy. And they do this on purpose. This is not just something that they've kind of worked their way into and then said, oh, it's working. We should keep doing it. 
they purposely will move things around the store. So, you know, whether it's like weekly or biweekly, if you go into a Costco like in May and then you go back in June, all the things that you found in May are probably someplace else. With the rare exception of a few things, the rotisserie chickens, which they always put in the same place. Obviously, it's pretty difficult to move the rotisserie, but it also gets people to go in the front and go straight to a rotisserie chicken in the same way they would go straight to the front for like a famous hot dog, right? They go straight to the back for the rotisserie chicken. And because everything has moved around them, they're going to see different things. They're going to notice different stuff. Oh, I didn't know they had laundry detergent. I didn't know that they had that brand of jeans. And then you start to kind of see things and get exposed to stuff that you would normally you know, be exposed to. And it works the same way for the regular items that you would pick up. So if you go in and you want to get a big thing of Tide, well, if the thing of Tide moves every you know, couple of weeks, you're going to have to go on a treasure hunt to go find it. So you become exposed to things. You see stuff that you wouldn't normally see and you kind of throw it in the cart. And once it's in the cart, you start to get a little bit of what's called the endowment effect. So the endowment effect basically says that when we own something or we have the intent to own something, we start to create these emotional bonds. And I talk about this with Ikea as well, because Ikea has these huge store footprints and it's kind of a one-way track system. So if you put something in the cart, like a lamp, oh, I'm just going to think about this lamp for a little bit. I, I don't want to go back and get it. And then you start you know, pushing it through the store. You start to bond with it. In the same way Costco, you know, I pick up something, I put it in the cart. Well, I'll just, I'll just think about it. But nine times out of 10, you get to the front and you decide to buy it because you bonded with it a little bit. You've created what behavioral scientists call pre-memories. Like, oh, that lamp is going to look really good in the living room. And when I invite my friends over, they go, oh, look at that amazing new lamp. So, you know, we start to subconsciously bond with these products. And Costco encourages that because they make you go all over the store, which is about, you know, I'm going to say multiple football fields. I know Ikea is at least three football fields. I'm going to say Costco is probably more like four. It's huge. You know, one one final thing you mentioned on the on the podcast about Costco was reciprocity. Like you couldn't yes. you couldn't pay me all the money in the world to go to my local Costco on a Saturday morning when it's just absolutely bonkers. <laughs> and yet and yet my wife and daughter go on the regular because they love the samples. And we know, you know, Cialdini's principle of reciprocity, right? You know, we 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 mm-hmm. can have sort of mental debits and credits. And if someone gives us something, quote unquote, for free, like we're going to want to to repay that kindness. And so a lot of psychological complexity. For, for my next question, though, Jen, I, I think this is uh, I got a really serendipitous listener question this week. And I think you're the perfect person to have this conversation with. And the listener is a financial advisor, like many of the listeners mm-hmm. to this show. And he asked he and his business partner. We're having a conversation. They have two intake forms, two sort of like onboarding forms for their clients. And one is far more exhaustive than the other. <clears throat> one is sort of basics, demographic materials, just sort of the basics. Mm-hmm. And the other asks sort of more personal and more probing questions. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we know a couple of things from the behavioral science literature. If you, if you think about the East framework from the nudge unit, mm-hmm. right? We mm-hmm. know that one of the ways to increase the the prevalence of a behavior is to make it easy. We mm-hmm. see that all over the place in the behavioral mm-hmm. science literature, that like the easier it is, the better. But then you've got Costco over here having some great success by actually gatekeeping, like by actually mm-hmm. placing some barriers to entry mm-hmm. and, and sort of leveraging the sunk cost fallacy. 
So the listener was asking, he's like, sort of like, dear Abby, settle, settle mm-hmm. debate for me and my, my partner here. <laughs> you know, should we make it easy, make it sort of as streamlined as possible to help get these folks through the gate? Or should we make it a little bit more arduous and engage that sunk cost fallacy? How would you, how would you think about this when there's sort of evidence for both? Yeah, I mean, I think with anything, I mean, behavioral science in particular is the lens through which we view things, right? So like with any experience, I would want to look at the customer journey. So what's happening before this? What's happening while they're doing this? What's expected to happen after? Um, I think knowing the context in which this is taking place becomes really critical, right? Because if I've already, for example, you know, let's say paid $100 to get a consultation fee and now I have to fill out this form. Well, I'm much more likely to fill out a complex form that's more helpful to the person who's financially advising me if I've paid some amount of money that I don't want to lose, for example. If this is an intake form for like a free consultation, well, then simpler is probably better because the goal is to get them in the meeting and then maybe, you know, probe and pull some of these bits of more personal information out of them. So, you know, I'll give you the, it it depends, the classic answer, right? Um, But that's the way I always think about these things is, you know, it's in the context of the customer journey. And while simplicity is, is really good, and we know in particular for financial advisors, like simplicity can build trust. It can make people you know, more likely to complete things, more likely to engage with you. But we also know that friction in the right places and the right amount of friction can actually be beneficial because you get things like you know the Costco effect, right? Where it's a little bit of sunk cost, a little bit of friction, and that makes me want to engage with it more. So it really depends on you know a lot of things, objectives, context, you know, what what kind of customers are coming through the door, that sort of thing. Um, so that I haven't I haven't settled this debate at all. <laughs> but what I will say is experiment. If I were them, that's what I would do. I would maybe swap, like swap the forms a week for one week and see what happens. You know, have your customers that would normally or the people you're advising who would normally maybe, you know, do a more complete form, a more probing personal form and give them the simpler form and see what happens. Are they more likely to come back? Are they more likely to engage? Are they more personable? Do they feel more bonded with you? Is it something that's building a relationship because they've disclosed personal information? So yeah, it really depends on the goals. It depends on the context. And I think it depends on the objective of the form itself. Yeah, you know, to to sort of further uh, land in the it depends camp, like I have the... <laughs> You know, I have the benefit of having seen these two intake forms. You, you don't. I'm just bringing this on you. But you know, <laughs> have, having seen these two, I would almost say I didn't like either of them very much. And like I, you know, I don't like, I don't like feeling like I have an assignment. Like if I'm going, you know, if I'm going to the doctor or something, and you know, I think something that could ostensibly be seen as a way to develop rapport and deepen understanding of a client, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. asking personal questions on an intake form. You know, if if I if I have that conversation with my advisor in person, face to face, and we get into my childhood money story and my first memory of money and things like that, mm-hmm. that would be trust building, that would be uh, strength of the relationship that would be an engaging conversation. But like, if you give me that as a writing assignment before our first meeting, like I'm kind of annoyed almost. And so I think mm-hmm. you know that o- almost like you could have the same, you could have the same thing have very different outcomes depending mm-hmm. based on how it's delivered. 
because mm-hmm. there's, you know, is it is it sort of this onerous writing assignment or mm-hmm. is it an organic conversation that that serves as? Yeah, a- I mean, and to me, I again, like not having the context of seeing the form is a little difficult, but. To me, I almost think giving them something that's a quick win. So giving them a form, it's really easy and simple and takes five minutes to fill out before that meeting. Amazing. Because then you have started to kind of, you know, build in a little bit of I'm going to give you a little bit and in return, you're going to give me some more. But you save the more, you know, relationship building things for in person. And a lot of people are just not, let's say, comfortable disclosing, you know, their personal funny stories and their childhood stories you know, on a form. Some people, you know, communicating with a written word is just not their strong suit. They don't like it. It's difficult. It reminds them of being in school, you know, neurodivergence. There's a lot of like reasons why that might not be the correct way to do it. It's an interesting example, actually. So the Ritz-Carlton, I talk about how um, Steve Jobs actually went to the Ritz-Carlton to get inspiration for the way that they put together the Apple stores. But one of the things I think the Ritz-Carlton does really, really well is with training, they offer options. So you can do one-to-one training. You can do the same thing, but in a group. You can do, you know, virtual training. Any of these same topics, they'll give them like three or four different ways that they can actually absorb the information because they know different people learn in different ways and different people want to disclose information or communicate in different ways as well. So I think you made, yeah, a really salient, really good point. Yeah. So there, there's, there's my answer. Get the, get the easy information in an easy way, right? I mean, there's no point in having a conversation about you know, what's your birthday, what's your name, all that. Like get yeah. the information in an easy way. Save the personal stuff for the face-to-face. It's a good impulse to go deeper, but make sure you're doing it in a way that's consistent with the way that it sticks with the client. So the next psychological tendency that I want to talk about is one of my absolute favorites, maybe because I'm sort of a clumsy, goofy guy, but you know, <laughs> this is the this is the pratfall effect. And, and I love it because it shows how being human, being flawed, and, and sort of bringing our whole authentic selves to you know to an interaction can can work to our advantage. I talked about the pratfall effect recently on Stacey Havener's podcast. Go check out my episode with Stacey Havener if you haven't yet, and check out her new podcast. But if you if you could tell us what the pratfall effect is. And how it was used to great effect by brands like Apple, KFC, and, and Domino's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the profile effect basically says that our mistakes can make us more likable as long as we're pretty well liked to begin with, right? So the way that they did the experiment was um, people were listening to a recording. And in this recording, people were answering questions on a test. And you'd have some people that seem more competent answering the questions to the test. And you had some people that seem less competent. And then you would hear, because it was an audio experiment that these people were listening to go oh no i dropped coffee on myself oh no you know they would do a whole thing and you know it's like a radio play but what they found was when you know people were looked at as competent or you know well liked that making a mistake was like oh great well they're not perfect and the same thing can sort of be true of brands as well so a good example uh, there's a few um i'll use the kfc one because i think the solution is really brilliant but so kentucky fried chicken we all know um, Americans may not know that in the t- in 2018, KFC in the UK, and there are many KFCs here, it's one of the biggest fast food restaurants in the country, uh, they changed chicken suppliers. And I remember this very well because my client at the time was McDonald's, so I was paying a lot of attention to the QSR fast food industry. And they changed suppliers and one day just didn't have any chicken. Just no warning, no nothing. They all rocked up to the office and everybody went, guess what? 
There's no chicken to serve in any of these chicken restaurants. So they had to close basically every store in the country with a sign that said, sorry, there's no chicken. So what do you do if you are a chicken restaurant that runs out of chicken? Well, you issue an apology. Now, their apology, I think, is probably one of the most epic brand apologies. So if you think of the way a KFC bucket looks, so it's red and white and it says KFC. Well, they issued a press release that had an image of that bucket, but they rearranged the letters to say the words that you might say if you ran a chicken restaurant that ran out of chicken. So I believe it was uh, FKC or FCK. (laughs) So a little a little cursy. You know, but um, it's they just rearranged their letters. I thought it was really clever. And they said, you know, we're sorry. We ran on chicken. It was a big mistake. We messed up. And their customers forgave them. They're like, okay, great. You know, you told us what you did wrong. You told us what you're going to do to fix it. And now we seem to like you a little bit better. Another good example of, you know, probably, let's say, one of the most flawless brands. Well, I, I think we remember them as flawless. But actually, if you dig into their history, they're not so flawless. And that would be Apple. So if we remember in 2012, Apple Maps debuted. And while that seems like a million years ago, it was only about 11 years ago. And Apple did not have a Maps product. So they didn't have Google Maps, excuse me, on their iPhones. So they decided, oh, we're going to create our own Maps product. It's going to be amazing. And they debuted it and it stunk. It was awful. Like they, the Sears Tower, as it was known then, was like three miles away from where it was supposed to be. There was a fake airport in the middle of Dublin, Ireland. Like Paddington Station in London was like smushed into the ground. The Brooklyn Bridge was flattened directly into the river. I mean, it was just awful. And, you know, normally you would say, well, that could destroy a brand. I mean, they they debuted something that terrible. It's just how could they recover from that? But literally Tim Cook came out and this was like early in his his you know career as the CEO at Apple. So it was a very risky time for him. He came out and literally told the press the words, we screwed up. He's like, we screwed up. This isn't what you expect from Apple. We're sorry. We're going to fix it. And then within the year, they had about 35 million Apple Maps users because they forgave them. They're like, you know, you're not perfect. You said you're not perfect. You took some steps to fix it. And while a lot of people will just forget that it happened, those people that don't forget that it happened forgave them because they're like, most of the time, Apple's great. So we'll give you a pass on this one. Yeah. You know, I think Domino's has been one of the greatest stories of this in in recent history. And if you look at their stock over the past few years, Mm. Domino's has traded like a tech stock. I mean, Domino's mm-hmm. traded at like tech stock multiples and has been just this incredible story. And mm-hmm. they were big when we were kids, right? I think we're something like the same age. And like they were big when we were kids. And then they were garbage, like for a big stretch yeah. in the middle. They came out and they said, look, we were garbage. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't good. Like messed up. It wasn't good. And people can forgive that, you know? And I, I love the Cialdini research around authority, which, which basically says, all of us have this sixth sense that that brands and people are fallible. Like you can't mm-hmm. be good at everything. And so one of the most powerful ways to show your authority is to be honest about when you mess up and then be yeah. honest about what you're really good at. You know, to to go to the restaurant and have the server say, look, like the fish is not good, but the mm-hmm. sneak is amazing. You mm-hmm. you really trust that person and and it, I love it because I know that we can smell inauthenticity a thousand miles away. And I think that the right thing to do is just to say, you know, I'm sorry and, and move on. So, you know, the, ne- the next question, we, we routinely survey the financial advisors that we serve. And, and in our most re- recent survey, one thing came back really loud and clear 
uh, when it when it came to what our advisors were looking for, and and that was personalization. Mm-hmm. And the results of this survey put me in mind of something that you talked about uh, with respect to personalization, which is the cocktail party effect, and how brands like Coke and Starbucks, and and for me especially Spotify, use it to be great effect. So, what is the cocktail party effect, and, and how can we use it to our to our advantage? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's one of the best name principles that are out there, right? The cocktail party effect. Everybody wants to know, why is it called the cocktail party effect? Yeah. Um, well, it was discovered or coined by a British researcher named Colin Cherry, and it was the 60s. And if you know anything about history, think like to Mad Men days, cocktails were a huge thing. Like you would go to somebody's house and you'd have a cocktail party and drink these fancy cocktails and stand around and gossip. And it's sort of the classic, you know, picture of what um, a party is, like a house party at somebody's house. So he wanted to figure out, like, could our brains sort of like tune in and out of information? So he went to cocktail parties and he would have somebody basically say someone's name. And we've all kind of been in this situation probably at one time or another. We got like a frat party or, you know, house party. And all of a sudden you hear like, Jen, and you're like, oh, no, is that person talking about me? Now, if you're me, my name is so common, I probably wouldn't. But (laughs) if you have a more uncommon name where they kind of look at you and snicker or something, you're like, oh, I I need to tune into what they're saying. Are these people gossiping around me or about me? And that's what he found. He found that our brains could actually tune into these conversations. And there were key things that we looked for. Among them were our name and, you know, relevant information. And I mean, I think that's really the thing to take away. There, There are some other supporting principles around this, but the whole idea is when you get personalized information or information that's relevant to you, you pay attention to it. You zoom into it. Your brain automatically goes like, oh, you know, this is a like a commercial about Milwaukee. I'm from Milwaukee. So let me pay more attention to this. A lot of brands use this really well. I think the biggest trip up for this is the availability of data, right? And like I've worked in CRM and customer experience and product innovation for a long time. And it is an issue to try to get, you know, clean data, good data, um, you know, data that you can rely on. But the good news is you don't need a ton of data. So a great example is like Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola did share Coke. So if you remember, I mean, you're from Atlanta, so you probably <laughs> like know people that work at Coke. So they have, you know, the names that they'll put on the bottles of Coke. And what did people do? You know, they actually, they went out and they said, oh, that one says Jen, I'm going to pick that one out. Or, hey, my mom's name is Vicky. I'm going to go find one and find one that says Vicky. I'm going to give it to my mom. And then later they sort of expanded this to identities like wingman or best friend. And it was a huge hit. It actually started in Australia and they expanded it across the globe. And it just, you know, in terms of social media impressions and sales, it was just a giant success. And it's because people look for their names. They want to feel sort of, you know, like they're seeing a little bit of themselves in the product. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, that doesn't really take much data. I mean, what are you doing? You're probably looking up the most common, like 200 or 300 names in a country and putting them on a bottle of Coke. But if you look at the flip side with something like Spotify, where, you know, thankfully for them, they're a relatively new product. Like they've probably been doing a really great job with data tracking from the beginning. And they had all this data sitting around and they said, you know what? I think it'd be really cool if at the end of every year, we just shared with people what they were doing on the platform. And that's Spotify wrapped. So at the end of every year, you'll see on social media inevitably, oh my God, it's my wraps. Did you know that like the number one person that listens to Bad Bunny in the whole world, you know, like that kind of stuff, which people love because first of all, they pay attention to it because it's all about them and we love ourselves. Like that is true universally everywhere. But then we want to share it on social media because it's something that's about us. It says something to the world about who we are, who we're listening to, how we're spending our time. And so it sort of works 
you know, in a, a, a double-sided way, in a good way, in that, you know, we pay attention to it because it's about us, but we want the world to pay attention to it because it's also about us. So Spotify and Coke, you know, two sort of ends of the spectrum, right? Because I think the beautiful thing about the cocktail party effect is it doesn't require a lot of data or a lot of hard work. I mean, if you think about Starbucks, like localization, you go up to Washington, D.C., or you go to Atlanta, or you go to New York, and they'll inevitably have a Starbucks that's like the tourist Starbucks that has like the D.C. monuments on the wall and the mugs that say Washington, D.C. And they're just doing something to make you feel like, oh, that's where I am. You know, this is, okay, it's a little, a little something about me, something that I can recognize. Or, you know, you'll see billboards or ads that, you know, like I was saying, like, hey, Chicago, drink Budweiser beer. Those little things actually do make a difference, even though they seem sort of superficial. But if you can use that data in a really, you know, nice targeted way to be even more personalized about people, their behaviors, you know, their thoughts, their beliefs, all of that. I mean, that's an ideal situation. Yeah, I think the biggest I think the biggest round of applause I ever got was speaking in Detroit and and right before uh, right before going on. I ran down to the little hotel gift shop and got a Coke. I'm a giant Diet Coke. So getting you know, getting my caffeine, getting a Diet Coke, and I saw a shirt that said, say nice things about Detroit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I began my presentation by saying nice things about Detroit and encouraging other people to do the same. You know, I'm mm-hmm. from I'm from Alabama. I'm sensitive to being from a place where people don't have a lot of nice things to say about where you're from. And you know, yeah. that's sort of said as much and people really people truly appreciated that so just a little bit of personalization if you work in a high tech environment you can certainly do a spotify rap sort of situation but even if you don't i think the coke and the detroit and other things give us examples of of low tech ways to make that happen Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think I think the nice thing, though, as much as people love Spotify wrapped, you may notice that everyone has a wrapped now. Like I Peloton, Peloton sent me a wrapped. Spotify sent me a wrapped. Every like New York Times sent me a wrapped. You know, like every everything that I subscribe to all of a sudden decided wanted to send me a report card. And to be honest with you, the Spotify, you know, work didn't have as big of an impact on me because it wasn't unique anymore. Suddenly it was like everybody's telling me every little detail about myself. Sometimes I just want somebody to just say like, hi. How are you? You know what I mean? Just something a little a little less personal, but still personal. Yeah. Okay. Who was your number one artist last year, though? Oh, God. I don't remember. It's it's going to be awful, like BTS or something. <laughs> I, just, I just put on the music and I don't really listen to it. And I find that like K-pop and like pop music is really good to do that. Or like Chill Hop. That's probably who it is. It's probably some Chill Hop playlist artist. <laughs> Definitely. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So next, next to last question here. I'm a huge Nike guy. You know, when I think about the top brands in the world, Apple, Coke, Nike, you know, right at the top of the list, you know, I'm part of this maybe sad cohort of middle-aged men who wait for Nike to drop these shoes that I wanted when I was 10 years old and couldn't afford, right? And I'm sitting here trying to get some Air Jordans or some Air Maxes. And I probably get one in 20. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is like sitting here at, at 10 o'clock the second they drop, you know, hitting buy, buy, buy with all my credit card info in. <laughs> this sort of, this sort of uh, artificial scarcity. Talk to us about what Nike does well. And, and in particular, I don't, you know, you, you not, may not be a huge sneakerhead, but 
I can tell you that that Nike sort of induces this artificial scarcity. Mm-hmm. It's it's maddening, but I, I keep coming back. So talk to us, talk to us about Nike as a brand and, and artificial scarcity. Yeah, so scarcity is an interesting one in that it has pros and cons, right? So I think I think you've mentioned some of the, the pros and that it kind of makes you really want something. It, it makes you know you kind of like it, it gets the demand sort of frothy and people get really excited and they want to stand outside the store. They enter the lotto and they're waiting by their email. That's the good side of scarcity for sure. And, you know, scarcity is really effective when you're competing against other people, not just that something is scarce, but that you've got to, you know, elbow a couple of people out of the way to get, you know, the first iPhone or a you know pair of Nike sneakers. I think some of the cons is interesting is you'll see things like, like knockoff brands. So like Supreme had a real problem with this where, you know, Supreme is obviously sort of like a hype beast brand and they partner with different brands and they'll create like a Louis Vuitton Supreme purse or whatever it might be. And it's it's always limited drops, right? So that it's similar to Nike and that it's kind of a drop um, structure to the business. But then you've got a bunch of people with pent up demand and you've got a, a bunch of other people who are less ethical who are going to try to meet that demand. So there are sort of, you know, pros and cons to using scarcity. But I think to your point, it is very, very effective at driving demand for something, for driving desire for something. Um, another good example, I mean, obviously, like Nike's great. They know exactly what they're doing. So they know why there's so much scarcity. I mean, you, you saw something similar when sort of Adidas and Yeezy were at the height. You know, they would have lottos. You'd have to go to like reseller sites. I mean, all in all, to me, it seemed like what we would call here in the UK a bit of a faff. So kind of a, a pain in the butt. Um, but you can see that it's, it's highly effective. Another example of that might be something like Hermes purses. So if you're not familiar with an Hermes purse, I think the cheapest one you can buy is like $10,000 or $15,000. And you have to like get on a wait list. It's like a whole process to get on a wait list. It's like a six year long wait list to get this purse. The most expensive Hermes purse sold for about 300,000 quid, I believe. So that's probably $400,000 in Hong Kong. So they're highly collectible. Um, and in fact, if you buy an Hermes purse, it's like a better investment than almost any stock on the stock market. But it doesn't work unless it's scarce. If they make a million of these purses, even if they charge you know ten or fifteen thousand dollars for them, it, the desire just isn't there because I don't have to compete with anybody to get it. So it is a real key point to any of these collectibles or exclusives or drop style business models is making sure that you literally are limiting those those amounts of whatever you're selling to just under you know what what people are after but being very careful about you know where that line is drawn because way too little and you sort of you know you don't really drive the brand you're not really doing you know the job for the brand overall but if you have too many well then the demand disappears so it's a it's a fine balance and i think they've probably perfected it after all these years yeah. Yeah, that that fine balance is so important because I found myself of late just going like this is kind of dull. Like I I I feel like I feel like I may just start wearing bands or <clears throat> just kind of give up because <clears throat> it just it it gets a little silly. Like I mean I mean look, it's it's all silly, but like there there comes a point where you go this is too hard. And I mean you yeah. have to see that with video games, right? Like if you make a video game too easy, uh, it's mm-hmm. boring and it's not engaging. But if you make it too hard, people give up. Is is there a way? You know, I 
I, I serve a lot of financial professionals. Is, is there a way that someone in sort of a typical middle-class consulting or, or advice type rule could leverage this idea of, of scarcity? Because I think it's obvious that, we, that brands like Hermes or Supreme use it, but, but how would, you know, Jim Bob accountant or, or, you know, Jane Q advisor use this? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, look, I can I can put it this way. Like, I also run a consultancy, which is not financial services, but it's professional services. And I've been in professional services for a number of years now. And I don't know if it's the same in financial services. However, in advertising agencies, especially or consultancies, they seem to want to promise whatever they have to promise to get whatever business they have to get. And they'll just think about it later and they'll staff up. And don't worry, we're here for you. Anything you need. Yes, of course, we can do that. Now, <laughs> when you think about that sort of model for professional services. I mean, how would you think about that as a client? Oh, always ready, always ready for my business. It feels kind of desperate, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, what I found actually that has worked really well for me is, first of all, something that I adopted for my sanity, which is limiting the amount of clients that I take on in any given month, quarter, week. <clears throat> and then saying to myself, well, you know, the demand is still there. Like a lot of people want to work with me, but I don't have the hours in the day. And I, it's not false scarcity. It's literally you know, I don't I don't want to work 12 hours a day. I want to work, you know, like eight or nine hours or 10 hours a day. And I'm going to cap it at that. And that's just how I'm going to, you know, operate everything. I don't want to hire any people. It's just how I want to work. And when I found I did that, people were, you know, responding to me. They were like, you know, whereas before they might have said, oh, thanks for the proposal. We'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. If I said something to them, like I've got one slot left and it doesn't open up until next month. And I'm talking to two other companies about it. All of a sudden, they found the money. They found, you know what I mean? They found the signature. They would really, you know, get to it. And I feel like because that's a true scarcity, it's it's not just me telling someone that because I want them to like sign on the dotted line. um, It came through as authentic. And I think it also creates that sense of urgency. So limiting, you know, how many clients you want to work with, having, you know, for financial services, potentially that could be you know, hurdle rates. So it could be, I need people that make a million a year, like two million a year, five million a year, you know, being really specific about who that target is and then, you know, capping and sort of limiting your availability. Now, not to make this, you know, a a consulting podcast, but when that happened to me, the demand was sort of outpacing the availability. So I decided to be a little bit more flexible with the way I put together my offerings. So now I have, you know, we were talking about this earlier, micro consulting. So 15 minutes, you send me a question, I'll send you a video answer, you know, you've got it forever. You can reference it. And then I would have like hourly. So you just need to ask me one question. We can have a quick conversation. I can do an hour. But again, those are limited as well. It's like, you know, I only do, you know, four hour long conversations in a month. I'll only do, you know, like four or five different, you know, 15 minute micro consulting. And then I'll only take on two clients, you know, within a two month span. So those sort of things, while they feel very, <clears throat> I guess I would say risky, what they're communicating to your clients and your potential clients are they need to move quickly if they want to work with you and other people want to work with you. And there's a limited amount of these slots with which they can work with you. So, you know, if they're serious about this and, you know, it makes you more desirable for sure. But if they're serious about it, they need to kind of, you know, decide now that that's something that they want to do. So again, the thing that I would say is false scarcity is always a bad idea because it's unethical in my opinion, but true scarcity, like creating boundaries, saying we don't want to hire in any more people. This is the amount of time that we have to work. This is what we want to do. This is the client base that we want to work with. That is very effective. And I think it's also very healthy for people who happen to work in professional services. Yeah, I, I love that framing of it. It's good for you and it's also good for your business. You know, I, uh, yeah. 
back back when I was doing a great deal of back when I was on my own, I had a solo consultancy from for many years, and I was doing a lot of public speaking. And I was complaining to a fellow consultant friend about just how busy I was, and she said to me, "Look, if you're not turning down half of the offers you're getting, you're not charging enough, and you're not doing it right." And yeah. I raised my prices and sort of got to the point where I was uh, turning down half of the engagements that came my way. Indeed, I was making more money and having a much better life. I've I've seen your advice play out firsthand. I think it's very good advice. Uh, the the last thing I want to talk about, you're uh, in addition to having an excellent podcast, you you really are a great follow on LinkedIn, and uh, you you posted something the other day on LinkedIn about the core motives model of social influence which to me looks sort of like a simplified version, a, a three-step influence process that sort of subsumes the six mm-hmm. weapons of influence from, from Cialdini. Mm-hmm. And the, the three that, that they talked about made perfect sense to me with respect to the financial advisors that I work with, you know, mm-hmm. who are in the difficult position of giving their clients uh, advice, but not always having it stick, right? Giving their clients advice that's that's sort of inherently hard to follow. Mm-hmm. I know that people are bad at taking risk and being long-term mm-hmm. and accepting uncertainty and all the things mm-hmm. we ask them to do. So the, so the three steps for were, first, cultivate a relationship. Mm-hmm. Second, reduce uncertainty. And finally, motivate action. <laughs> cultivate a relationship, reduce uncertainty, and motivate action. Can you talk a little bit about this model and sort of give some practical steps of how we could we could engage those three steps? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I do really love this framework. So it's created by a guy named Dr. Gregory Neidert. I believe is how you say his last name, Neidert, Neidert. And he works with Gildini, actually. So he, you know, obviously worked really close with him to create something that made these, you know, seven weapons of influence, now seven, used to be six, the seven weapons of influence more, I, I guess, like tangible for people, because you're right. I think while the Cialdini work is so good, I mean, it's, it's seminal work, we all, you know, depend on it in persuasion. Um, it doesn't always feel actionable. It can feel very tactical. Like, what do I use? When do I use it? The beautiful thing I think about Neidert's framework is it's so simple. You're right. So cultivating that relationship. I mean, if you think about it in terms of Cialdini principles. So that's things like, you know, we talked about reciprocity, like, oh, I'll give you like a little something for free. And then you sort of feel indebted to me and we start to build a relationship. I mean, liking, which is, you know, liking is a really difficult one. But, you know, you create rapport with people. Obviously, financial services, financial advisors like do that every day. I think the other thing is unity is a good one. So if we're just focusing on the Cialdini principles, um, so unity is the newest of the seven. And that's basically, you know, if you feel like you're on sort of the same team as someone. So maybe you went to the same university or we're in the same fraternity or you ha- both have kids that are on travel soccer, soccer teams, right? So, you know, these are just ways that you can kind of say like, oh, look, we're, we're kind of similar. We have similar interests. Other things I would say that are outside of Cialdini's seven weapons of influence would be things like mere exposure effects. So, you know, this is also called familiarity bias. So basically, the more I see someone, uh, the more I like them, the more I trust them. Um, so making yourself, you know, use LinkedIn as an example, making yourself present on social media, showing your face, doing video, like having a podcast, the more people can get familiar with you, the more they start to build <clears throat> either an actual relationship or a parasocial relationship, which are the you know relationships we're building with like YouTubers and people on TV. It's not really a relationship, but we feel like we have a relationship because we, you know, interact with them and, and hear them speak and, 
you know, share their opinions so much. So that's cultivating a relationship. And really what that's answering is this question of, you know, why should I listen to you? And the answer should be, well, because, you know, we have a relationship and you listen to people with whom you have a relationship. So that's the goal of the first um, the first step. Then reducing uncertainty. So this is where you get things like social proof and authority. But though, interestingly, I I just released a, a, a course called How to Find and Win More Clients. And I went deep down the rabbit hole of behavioral science for B2B and for professional services firms. And while authority is a great principle, what a lot of behavioral scientists have found is that if you rely too much on an authority, well, I'm telling you this because I'm the authority, because look at the degrees on the wall. I mean, that's what you hired me to do. That can actually backfire. And what you want to do is instead adopt a look at what we're doing together. We're co-creating a financial plan. We are you know, tackling your biggest challenges together. We're building wealth as a team. Those are the kind of things that really help you know, reduce that uncertainty is to feel like someone's on the same team as you. You're working towards a shared goal. Um, social proof, obviously, you know, testimonials like it's social proof is a good one in that there's two kinds. Um, there's many others. So like McDonald's says, billions and billions sold as as a financial advisor. If you can say, well, I've helped a thousand people who are in your shoes and they're all happily, you know, early retired and everything's great. And then you have similar others. So the more testimonials you can gather that are from people like the people that you want to attract to you or the people you're you know building a relationship with the better you know it's it's one thing to say like i helped you know this this single man in his 50s who had no kids uh, you know on the flip side to say but i'm i'm going after families with kids under 5 years old well you know then get some testimonials from people who are sort of in that same group because that's who they'll listen to it goes back to cocktail party effect right it's relevant to me um and then the last step for motivating action it's, you know, you kind of set set up the whole thing. I mean, we talked about context, right, in the customer journey. You've taken some steps, and now what you want to do is basically hit the ball off the tee. I love being on American podcasts because I can use baseball metaphors or t-ball metaphors. <laughs> in other situations, I always have to like, oh, is there a cricket metaphor for this? But yeah, you can hit the ball off the tee, um, but you have to you know put it on the tee with the first few steps. And really, the question you're trying to answer here is, why should I follow through? So what is going to make me act now. And we talked about scarcity is a really good one. Um, you know, if you're telling this person and it's truthful that, you know, you've got one one spot open for, you know, somebody to be your newest client and, you know, you think this could be a really good relationship. However, you know, you are talking to a couple other people and we're trying to see who's going to be the best fit for this particular spot. Scarcity creates, you know, a, a motivation for action. It gives you a reason to do something now. And then I would say consistency is the other one. So commitment, consistency, if uh, you know your listeners are familiar with Cialdini, you'll know that people like to stay true to this impression that they have of themselves. So if you go on Facebook and tell everyone, I'm going to run a marathon in July, you're much more likely to run that marathon because you want to stay consistent to a public commitment that you've made. So we talked, you know, we'll, we'll bring it full circle. You know, you go back to these forms that you want to fill out. If you've gone through and filled out, you know, a whole form with all of your you know, personal information, and let's say at the bottom of the forum, you have them sign something that says, um, you know, I commit to meeting with my financial advisor at least three times before I make a decision. Yeah. They sign it. All of a sudden, they're they're much more likely to, you know, stay consistent with that commitment that they've made because it's just how we are. It's just human nature. Now, will 100% of people do that? No, but most people will. They will feel committed to something that they've publicly shared either with the financial advisor or their instance on social media or with their friends and family. 
Yeah. So um, in, in the world of finance, the financial advisor typically presents the client with something called an investment policy statement, which is mm. you know, these are sort of the rules of the road by which I will uh, safeguard and, mm -hmm. and manage your assets. What I have encouraged advisors to do, and, and we'll take this opportunity to do again, is to create a behavioral policy statement, is to, to sort of create that unity to say, yep, we're a team. We're doing this together. Here's the IPS. I, your advisor, will follow these rules. You've got to meet me halfway, though. Like, you've got to you know, contribute every month. You've got to come to meetings every so often. You've got to mm -hmm. uh, maintain a long-term vision. You know, you've got to keep me abreast of changes. Well, you know, whatever that looks like. My book, The Laws of Wealth, the first half of that was actually sort of my behavioral policy statement. So this pre-commitment idea is a, is a great way to motivate action. So Jen, mm -hmm. we are, um, we're pushing up against the hour here. <laughs> I want to make sure that people are able to find you because I think what you're doing is sure. a, a huge service. So tell us about where can we, you know, read your stuff, find the podcast, engage with you as a consultant. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know what? I kept it easy and everything is named Choice Hacking. So if you go to YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, if you go to choicehacking.com, if you go on Amazon and search Choice Hacking, you'll find my book. So I am Choice Hacking everywhere. Um, and that includes LinkedIn, by the way. There is a company page, but you can also find me, Jen Kleinhens, on LinkedIn. I Personally, I think that's the best place to follow me, but I'm pretty much everywhere. And as you said, the podcast is also called Choice Hacking, which you can find on any you know, I guess you could say your podcast platform of choice. So Spotify, Apple, YouTube, I'm everywhere. And I am choice hacking in all of those places. Yeah. Well, highly encouraged to go check it out. You will learn a ton. Jen, thank you for, for joining us this morning. And thanks for all the good you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.